Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney has summoned the Russian ambassador to a meeting as Ukraine declares a state of emergency. I've instructed senior officials in my department to summon the Russian ambassador this evening to underline Ireland's strong views on these issues. Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen has said that Ireland must step up to the plate to ensure that tech giants are properly regulated. You have the power and the responsibility not only to improve online safety for Irish citizens, but for people across the world. And later we ask if nuclear power was safe, would it solve the climate crisis? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. European Union leaders will hold an emergency summit tomorrow after the bloc today approved a first limited round of sanctions. A little earlier, I spoke to news correspondent Rosie Burchard in Brussels. I began by asking her about the mood in Europe tonight as, the, as Ukraine gets set to declare a state of emergency. Well, Claire, the mood is certainly very tense. Here in Brussels particularly, there's quite a resolute mood. That's because the EU has unveiled today this raft of sanctions in response to Russia's latest move. Now, we knew the European Union was planning to target banks. We knew it was planning to cut trade with these breakaway regions. And we knew it was planning to target individuals. But until very recently, we did not know who. But the news is out. The European Union is going to be slapping asset, uh, asset freezes and travel bans on no fewer than 351 members of the Russian parliament and 27 people that it considers to be high profiles or people and entities. And those most crucially include uh, members of the Russian government and senior military figures. So certainly a feeling of having taken a big step here today in Brussels in this most tricky of situations and a very tense time. And of course, uh, EU leaders are preparing to hold this emergency summit uh, tomorrow evening on the, the decision to recognise um, as independent the, these breakaway provinces by um, Vladimir Putin. They're going to discuss what they're going to do next, right? And, and about potentially more sanctions coming down the line. That's right, Claire. It will be definitely the, the theme of the meeting will be what to do next. And of course, that is the million dollar question. That meeting, emergency meeting, was just announced in the last few hours. The Taoiseach will be travelling to Brussels for these crunch talks with other EU leaders. Certainly what might be on their minds, potentially a refugee crisis if there is a further invasion, particularly in those countries that border Ukraine, for example, Poland. And they'll also be thinking about how to deal with potential Russian countermeasures. So we've also already heard from Russia 
Russia that it will be trying to slap back at the EU, so to, you know, to, to hit back after these measures. Russia, of course, says it it doesn't. It's not trying to threaten anyone. So the EU will be trying to kind of anticipate that next move. What's really important here is Europe's dependence on Russian gas. That's particularly crucial in Eastern Europe. So they'll be trying to work out how best to prepare for that, how to prepare for any measures Russia might take then against the EU. So they'll be trying to really plot out their next move on this most complex of geopolitical chessboards. Well, that was Rosie Burchard speaking to me earlier. Now here in studio to discuss this further as editor of the currency Ian Kyo. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles, Sinn Féin Senator Lynn Boylan and News Talk presenter Shane Coleman. Uh, let's go to that news first. Simon Coveney bringing it to the attention of the doll that he will be bringing uh, the Russian ambassador in for uh, a stern talking to tonight. Yuri Filatov um, will be attending a meeting with Simon Coveney. What's likely to come of that, do you think, Shane Coleman? I, I, not a huge amount, I suppose. This is, uh, this is pretty routine. This is what you would expect to happen. I'm sure there'll be a, a dressing down of sorts in diplomatic diplomatic terms. Uh, I don't imagine um, Mr Putin will be shaking in his boots at the prospect of this happening. But it needs to be done. It's a step that has to be taken. I, I'm, I was fascinated by uh, Rosie's report there as to what's been done, and that's fine. But I think tomorrow it'll, it'll be interesting to see how far, how much further they will go. Uh, how serious is Europe about sending out a real signal to, to Russia? How far do they go now? Do they waste? Do they throw the kitchen sink at it? Or do they hold off and say, well, we're, we're doing this because this is, you've gone so far, we don't want to use up all our armoury yet. It, it's going to, I, I, I don't know what the right thing to do. Uh, better minds than mine, better military minds than mine, better intelligence uh, obviously is there to decide that. But that will be fascinating, I think, to watch. Yeah, it is that, that game of chess and, and seeing how that plays out, Ian, in terms, I presume, as I say, this, this meeting between Simon Coveney and Yuri Filatov, it is happening. The equivalent meetings are happening um, right around European capitals at the moment. Um, you know, Russia likely to say there, there's, no, there's no threat here. No, well, I mean, it's, it's parlour, you know, uh, politics and democracy, you know, diplomacy, putting it out there. We'll really see if, if Europe has teeth tomorrow, how far they're willing to go. I think you summed it up well. The sanctions that have been put out so far are very limited in their nature. And that's the paradox of sanctions, that they only work if you target people who you actually don't want to hurt. So that's why we'll see, you know, Europe go after the elites but leave the rank and file citizens in Moscow alone. And it's also why you don't want to hurt European citizens by cutting off the gas pipelines. So in a sense, there's an awful lot of issues that Europe can't do it. They don't want to, they don't want to hurt people in Moscow, the rank and file people. They don't want to, you know, lead to energy prices going up. In that case, what they do is they go back and they say, right, we're going to put asset forfeitures or seizures on elites. The trouble is they've had five or six years to get ready for this. Most to of them have already moved their assets. That. And the, the entire, what, what's, what's forgotten here is that the entire Russian economy since you know, the Crimean crisis of seven, eight years ago has entirely buffered itself from any of these sanctions. They're ready for it. Yeah, so there's no surprise indeed in, in what, what's already been announced at least. Now, tonight I spoke to the director of Ukrainians in Ireland to get reaction um, from them about what's happening. Ukrainian people who are ready to enter a state of emergency in their country. Um, I spoke to Michael Baskin and I asked him about his desire to bring his family here to Ireland. In Ukraine at the moment, people kind of accept it. Mm -hmm. The war may start in, in, in a minute, and any given minute, uh, our 
people counting hours. Uh, so if you can imagine yourself or your listeners or watchers, uh, having been, it's very difficult to talk about the feelings yeah, and I, I can yeah, see for you there that it's um, yeah, because clearly like, an incredibly uh, stressful, stressful time, not least because you're thinking of, of family you have over there. Uh, what's the situation with your, your family now and how do they feel about, about being there? Um, uh, the, the, the call, of course, on Ukrainian citizens um, to leave if they can. Yes, a call on Ukrainian citizens is to leave and call on Ukrainian citizens. Uh, some people are prepared to leave and leave the houses, like probably my sister and my uh, family will have to do. But a lot of Ukrainians in the uh, since this morning, since uh, President Zelensky uh, called for the mobilization of reserve forces, of reserve Ukrainian forces, reports coming from Ukraine, military officer. Uh, very, very busy. People signing up in big numbers for not only for the uh, whoever have to sign, who have been called back to the army. Uh, a lot of people signing for that, what we call territorial defense forces. It's sort of civilian forces, uh, well, civilians uh, training to and, and preparing to fight for their own cities, for their own villages. And that's Michael Baskin telling us what it's like for Ukrainian people right now um, in Ukraine as they prepare um, for possibly all-out war. They don't know what's, what's coming next. But Shane, on that, Ireland's the only EU country not uh, prepared to take people from Ukraine without a visa. Doesn't that need to change at this point? Yeah, I think that's certainly something that would be, have to be looked at, Claire. And I think Ian nailed it in terms of his assessment that, you know, the human cost of this particular emerging conflict. And that was echoed tonight in the Dáil by the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs when he spoke specifically about that, whether that be about the potential for refugees, the impact on ordinary families for energy costs, not just in Ukraine, but across Western Europe as well. And he nailed that point again. And he, he, he just said, it's not how we respond to this ever-increasing conflict, but how we prevent it. And I think that's the importance of tomorrow night and the summit to make sure that you continue... I don't think this has gone beyond the point of no return. I do believe in diplomacy and the actual genuine feeling of EU leaders to make sure we, come, we, we bring it just, back from the brink. Shane, just to get back to that point about what Michael was saying there and just making it easier mm -hmm. for Ukrainians to come over and be yeah. united with family here. Are there plans around that? Well, I think that was stressed again tonight in the, in, in, in the debate with the Minister of Foreign Affairs as well. And I would hope, from a humanitarian point of view, that that would be acceded to and listened to as well. Yeah, do you think the whole potential humanitarian crisis and all of this is being focused on enough, Lynn? No, it hasn't. Um, and, you know, your heart would go out to Michael there to mean the worry of his family that are in Ukraine. To mean, and and that, that's the reality of the, of conflicts. I mean, that you have people behind all of that that you have to keep into focus. And I, and I agree surprisingly, with, uh, with Senator Cassells, that we need to try to always de-escalate the situation as much as possible. Um, nobody wants a conflict, nobody wants a war. I mean, the, the actions of Russia are completely wrong, but everything must be done to try and de-escalate, to try and have diplomacy. And Ireland, I suppose, needs to avail of its position on the Security Council now at a UN level as well to try and do that. Uh, you know, at the heart of all of this, and this is, is sort of the economic cost here of all these sanctions and, and, and what happens, um, 
you know, with our reliance, our energy reliance, the yeah. crisis we're in, the cost of living, and we heard the Taoiseach saying today, look, at it, we, there, there will be a hit, we will feel it, but this is what happens when you're fighting for the good. Um, how do you think people at home feel about that when we're likely to see already high prices spiralling yet again? Well, I don't think anyone's too delighted about it, but I think we have to put it into context about, you know, what the people in, in Ukraine are actually uh, facing. I think it would be... I just think it'd be a bit ridiculous if we started carping here too much about the impact on us when we're talking about a country that is about to be invaded. I mean, Ian's point is absolutely right about sanctions and how far you go. I do wonder, though, when we're talking about de-escalating, de have we gone beyond that? And can you actually, if sanctions are going to be effective, how do you not affect ordinary people? How do you not affect the Russian economy? If they're actually going to have meat, if they're actually going to cause Putin to stop and think... I think at some point you probably are going to have to introduce those sanctions that are going to hurt Russia, but are also going to have to hurt us. And that may be a price yeah. that we in Europe are going to have to pay. It's the ultimate test, isn't it, Ian, about how this plays out and whether Europe essentially can afford to do this. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, Shane's right, OK? It's, you know, at a time where you see tanks coming over the hill in Ukraine, you'd only be talking about the price of your gas, or your electricity bill. But... The reason our bills are going up, you know, go way beyond this. If you, I mentioned before about Crimea, at that time, we, you know, Europe came out and said as a stated policy, what we have to do is reduce our dependence upon Russian gas. At the time, they were, you know, giving us about 20%. Mm -hmm. That figure is now up to 34%. So rather than reduce, we've massively increased. And the reason for that is under investment by the oil companies who have sought to deliver shareholder returns, what's well, a longer term investment, and it all adds up to this. So we have never been more reliant on Russian gas as we have been today. And, how, and Vladimir how, Putin knows that. Yeah, how are, how are the markets all reacting to this right now? We are entering this period of real volatility and uncertainty, yeah, but I mean, it hasn't had a big impact no, so far in Europe, has it? It's had an impact in Russia. So the Russian stock market over the last two to three months is down by about a third which would indicate that an invasion is likely. They're expecting an invasion. Uh, the, the rest of the markets across Europe are down by about, it's about 8% over the last two months, which would indicate that they don't expect it to have a massive impact on the wider economy. So you're seeing one picture in Russia, but the Russian markets are very volatile anyway, mm -hmm. but you're seeing a very stable picture, surprisingly, across the rest of Europe who don't see it impacting upon economic outlook. I guess what is likely to happen, though, and we've alluded to it, is you're likely to see those already very high prices yeah, yeah. Um, go up further. And, and we know that the government have said they're, they're targeting the cost of living with a suite of measures. Lynn, do you think that that more is required at this point? I mean, we heard Pascal Donoghue and he said, look, what has been announced, that is it. There is money going in. People are getting their €200 Euro energy credit. There will be no mini-budget around that. There's two issues. One, I suppose, is the, the more long-term, like we're in the cold face of a crisis now and around the, the shortage of, of gas, and that's correct. But we have to look at the fact that we have led ourselves to this position in terms of relying so heavily on gas and not moving away and moving to renewables. And I know that'll be the topic coming up in, in the laser section of the show. Um, but even now, we need to focus on that and moving away 
away from a reliance on gas. We also need to reduce the demand on energy in this country. So that means the fact of what we've been calling moratoriums on data centres and that reduced the amount of energy you need in the yeah, first but place. Right now, just but in terms the, of, the measures, in terms of in, measures that are required But that's here. the long term. What we need to be doing is reduce the reliance on gas, move away from it. In the short term, there is other things that can be done. So uh, we had the... the uh, CRU, which is the, the commission for the, the regulator of the utilities uh, in before the climate committee this week. And, and I have to say, their, their, their responses were deeply disappointing. They're, they're very reluctant to engage in the market, to look at the profits that energy companies are making, and to look at the way the PSO levy is designed to, to, so that it would reduce the cost for households. There are things they can do. They're not going to make huge differences to people's bills, but they would bring their bills down. But we need a regulator that's prepared to actually regulate and not have a light touch approach. Yeah, but you also want to freeze the carbon tax increase that's coming down the line in May, which it, we're not... It's, it, and again, it is one of the one of the few tools that the government has in terms of actually addressing the cost of energy in the short term. Yeah, um, just what uh, Lynn was saying there about light touch approach to regulation. I mean, is there is there scope to change that? Look, we've heard this criticism. We heard we've heard it actually from Barry Cowan um, within your own party about you know not taking strong enough action here. Um, does something need to be done around this? Just on that point of, of light touch regulation and, and Lynn's point, for the last six years I've sat on the Organisation of Security Council Corporation in Europe, the OSCE, and um, it's actually that, that whole energy committee is chaired by a Ukrainian parliamentarian called Arthur um, Gerasimov, and he was constantly attacked by the Russians. I've seen this play out over the last six years, constantly attacked on that. We went in, made the point, argued from the point of view of peripheral countries such as ourselves, um, as Ireland, mm -hmm. and on that whole issue of energy debate, by the way, Sinn Féin had a permanent seat at that particular meeting. Never once did they attend, in particular the meetings in, in Belarus and so forth, where we're discussing that very issue. So, Lynn, you talk about moving away. You had a very seat at that particular table. Sinn Féin failed to take it up. They eventually lost the seat because the dog took them away from it because the Sinn Féin representative I'm never came. I'm talking about EU so policy I know, about and, and energy. That's what, and that's what we were discussing it. And Sinn Féin never came to the meetings to actually engage with but the key Shane, players on, Shane, on, on I, the I, playing field. Shane, I... I, I can guarantee you I sat in a very many meetings around energy policy when I was an MEP and always argued the fact that we needed to move away from a reliance on mm -hmm. fossil fuels. It's the only way to break the stranglehold that those and, and the conflicts that we have seen that are directly linked to fos, mm -hmm. the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to invest in your own renewable and Ireland is in a unique position to do that, to be energy secure. Okay. But right now, Shane, I mean, what Sinn Féin are calling for is certainly, you know, there's all about the fossil fuels and, and, and actually what the government is saying is this yeah. is what the carbon tax is all about yeah. and they want to freeze that like there are, there are a great many people who are watching at home going you know what we're hearing about rising rising uh, energy prices and right now we don't need that further increase this year does it have to happen I'm not sure that makes a, a, a huge difference and I mean let's get real here it's not just in the short term we're going to be dependent on gas we're going to be dependent on gas long term even with renewables so the idea that we can move away from gas is for the birds we do clearly it's absolutely need to not. It, well it is we're going to be dependent on gas for a long long time to come i was listening to john fitzgerald talk about this he was john he was fitzgerald saying is an economist yeah an economist who knows this expert. sector very well and he was making the point we are going to be dependent on gas for a long long period of time yes we need to remove to renewables but we are going to be uh, dependent on gas to resource it and it's not going to happen quickly enough. Well, it's, even if it does happen, the wind doesn't blow all the time. We have to have alternatives. We have, we have to have alternatives to renew. But if, if, sorry, one if, of only two European countries that don't have a hydrogen strategy. 
I think there's a real danger. There's a, there's a political imperative here. Obviously, the government feel, felt they had to, had to act. There's also an economic imperative. It is dangerous to chase inflation. It is reckless to chase inflation. You will not win if you chase inflation. We saw that in the 70s and the 80s, and we had a lost decade because of it. I just think we need to be really careful about repeating those mistakes. Painful as it is, I think what you have to do is prioritise those who are the most vulnerable and try and protect them as best you can. We cannot, or the government cannot, protect everybody from uh, increased Ian, would gas you, prices. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're, we're talking about the cost of living here, and you know, there, there's a CSO household spending survey out today saying, you know, lower incomes have very little leeway here. There's there's very little disposable income, and whatever they get is basically going on keeping themselves warm or putting food on the table right now. Um, the idea that there's no way to, to move around this, you know, will be, will be difficult for people to kind of comprehend. It's really, and if you look at the data, it's really expensive to be poor. And people don't look at it that way, but the choices that you can make about what sort of car you can drive, so you have to pay extra taxes because you can't get a new car. Or you pay incrementally for things. Or you pay incrementally or you have a meter in your car, a meter in your house for electricity. It's really expensive to be poor, so your choices are limited. So I think the government will have a case. And I, I see just on the Russian, on the Russian side, like Dmitry Med, Medvedev, who's one of Putin's closest allies was out the other day saying uh, that you know he expected to almost double what it would cost for, for gas coming out. Now, if we even got a fraction of that coming through, the government are going to be under significant pressure to put in place a package of measures to alleviate the cost inflation so, that's going so on. What about what Shane is saying about sort of inflation sparking f further inflation? In you know that 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 one chases the other. That really, if you if you, you, know, you give these incentives, then you're yeah, going to be paying I, for it. Look, I, I, I'm not talking about a mass stimulus package across everywhere else, but I, I do think that there are genuine people out there who are really struggling and will struggle going forward. I mean, you talk about inflation, the big issue, and it will go way beyond across, across the entire economy, and the big worry, from what I'm hearing, is if the ECB decide to tackle inflation, I don't want to get into an economic debate here because there's bigger issues, but if the ECB decide to knock up the price of interest rates, well, that's a wider macroeconomic shock that will impact the economy because no one's factored it in. Uh, but I think certainly there will well, be more pressure. Well, it seems that there is, you know, from talking yeah. to Pascal Donoghue the other week, he, they seem pretty prepared that this is likely to, to come no, down no, the, the line. The government might be prepared, but um, vast proportions of businesses and, and employers mortgage holders. and mortgage holders haven't factored it in for what they're dealing with. Yeah, and, and, and as, as I came back to there, you know, that the, the government is saying no mini-budget and no further changes around this, Shane. I mean, like... Is there a need to be so, you know, staunch in that defence of that particular stance now, given with all this volatility, all this uncertainty and the likelihood of raised interest rates, perhaps in Europe and everything that's happening um, on the Ukraine-Russian border? OK, well, I suppose the, the, the first point to make is that the suite of measures that was announced by the government in terms of the cost of living were very substantial. I mean, that shouldn't be scoffed at either. They're, they're hugely substantial in making sure that the people that Ian are, speak, are speaking about actually are supported, you know. People actually do care to make sure that they actually do uh, can actually make the cost of, of heating or gas and so forth. Uh, I don't think, I think, you know, the government made that, Pascal Donoghue made that statement. If it is a case that things escalate and you go further down the line, of course governments actually can go and reappraise at that particular time. Yeah. They're not going to be heartless to say, we're going to throw people under the bus. I think there's a, there's a lot of, this government has shown in the last 18 months in particular, when they were faced with the pandemic, Everybody was looked after, businesses and ordinary people, the same will be done again. And, and laws were changed really quickly, which is the point that some people exactly. are saying um, should be done when it comes to, um, you know, the, the energy prices we're, we're seeing there. But um, here at home, let's move on because the Taoiseach and 
and Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald traded their most personalised insults yet in the Dáil, each accusing the other of corruption. We'll take a look at that exchange now. I don't have the scope to recount the corruption, the corrupted nature of your relationship with the people that I refer to. Your party corrupted public life in this republic for well on 40 years. You corrupted the moral code of our country and our society by the murder and mayhem that you perpetrated. You also support the undermining of women who were raped by IRA volunteers and your party covered it up. You can wave all you like. Um, let's remind the viewers that was actually all in a debate about cuckoo funds. How did it come to that, Shane Castles? I mean, there's nothing new here. And uh, frankly, people would say they're getting bored of it. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if, if Mary Lou um, wants to bring the, you know, the, the doll chamber into, into base like this, uh, that's for her to choose. Uh, I, I do support the teacher in what, what you said. I've seen the, you know, the, the impact in my own county of the impact of you know, IRA activity as well in terms of the bogs uh, out, out in, out in yeah. Wilkinstown where they were digging for, for bodies of the, of, the, of the disappeared as well. So, but is that, that was in a conversation, that was in a dull debate about cuckoo funds. Uh, it's been brought up time and time again. Like, how do Sinn Féin put this to bed now? Because it, it isn't, you know, it isn't something that's disappearing. Oh, I think there's a level of frustration from me speaking to any of the Sinn Féin TDs during leaders' questions is that they don't get the answers and that Micheál Martin, as the Taoiseach, refuses to answer the questions that are put to him and then, and then deflects Sinn Féin just aren't happy and throws with the mud. We've seen even last week that he misled... They actually, the, they actually he don't misled, like the answers they're he getting, He misled finish. the doll with his accusations around housing objections, which we had the journal then do a fact check on and said that the Taoiseach was, was misleading in his comments. So all we want is the Taoiseach to answer the questions, to go in and, and to um, and enter into a debate in a manner that would be used to a government and opposition where the opposition can get answers I mean, there to the wasn't questions. Ju- there wasn't just, you know, the IRA brought up there. There was also Gals- Galway Tent, there was Ansbacker. It was just that, that, that tit for tat that is ultimately, would you say, Shane, uh, counterproductive? Yeah, I'm not sure. Michal Martin has clearly made a decision over the last six months or so that he's going to take the battle to Sinn Féin, that he's going to fight fire with fire as he sees it. I just don't know if that's effective but that's or not. But that's sort of been a constant. It's not just in the last well, six months, it's, No, it's, I think, very noticeably in recent months it, it has picked up and he has got, you know, he's, it, he is definitely taking the battle to him. I, I, I genuinely don't know if it, if it makes a difference. I suspect a lot of people tuning in to that today we're kind of thinking there's bigger issues going on in the world right now yeah, uh, and, and maybe than, than uh, two senior politicians in this country roaring across the floor at each other. It, it was a bit unedifying, I thought. Yeah, I mean, you know, just, just briefly, Ian, off the back of that, I mean, is there, is there something, because of actually all the reaction to it, that was largely negative, that there could be a change here and that they may say, look, do you know what, this isn't working and people are fed up. Oh, I just think people are sick of that punch and Judy stuff. I think that there's no real correlation between that sort of a debate in the door and the debate people are trying to have. I'd be much more interested... Except if, on Twitter, of course. Yeah, maybe so, but I'd be much more interested if, if, he wants to, if, if the Taoiseach wants to have a go at Sinn Féin, Let's look at the policies. Let's look at what their environmental policies, climate change, because that's much more interesting to people, I think, these days, and it gets glossed over. Okay, my panel will be staying with us. We'll be discussing nuclear energy in part three later on in the programme. But after the break, uh, Facebook whistleblower calls for an independent review of the Irish Data Watchdog. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen appeared virtually today before the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Tourism, Culture, Arts, Sport and Media and said that tech companies based in Ireland had got away with it when it comes to the enforcement of data protection regulations. Ms Haugen urged the Irish government to reflect deeply on its own role and on the responsibilities which come with housing what she called social media manipulation machines. Let's take a listen now of what she had to say. Some of the most egregious harms caused by the decisions made in shiny glass headquarters in Facebook Dublin have been in faraway places like Myanmar and Ethiopia. The ethnic violence fueled by Facebook in those countries are the opening chapters of a book too horrific to read. Uh, still here in studio with me is uh, the currencies in Kyo, Senators Shane Castles and uh, Lynn Boylan, and News Talk presenter Shane Coleman. Um, Ian, to come to you first on this, um, Frances Haugen did blow the lid on the inner workings of big tech. What message did she have for legislators today on what Ireland is doing or not doing? I think the message was quite simply we're not legislating, we're not regulating in the sense of really holding big tech and the powerhouses. Um, I mean, if you look, big tech are essentially the power plants, and that is the power plant of this current generation, of this current century, and we're doing very little. We seem either woefully underprepared to regulate them, or we're just not bothered. Uh, now, either answer to that is not a good thing, but certainly over the last five, ten years, Facebook, Google have you know, had their way in Ireland in terms of how they've dealt with their tax policies, in terms of their regulatory uh, compliance in relation to data. They've been pretty much allowed to do whatever they want. It's been a trade-off for government. We've got a lot of jobs and they've got an awful lot of corporation tax. But that game is wearing thin. If the, if the, if the argument there over the last, the big, you know, European debate was about corporation tax over the last 10, 15 years. That's been dealt with now. The next argument over the, ne over the, over the next decade is going to be about data and regulation yeah. of social media platforms. Shane, you were there and you were talking to Francis Haugen uh, today as a member of that committee. Um, would you say we're very late in trying to play catch up here, having you know, appeased these big companies, trying to lure them over here? They're all set up and you know, it's a cosy relationship and we're not dealing with the problem now. OK, well, I think the first point is we actually 
brought legislation into the House last night. We were debating the online uh, media yeah. bill. In the, and just to make that point, so that, and that was the premise for why uh, Frances Hogan was before us uh, today. And at the point she made, and this is the important point, she talked about the understanding the system. So it's not just about the, the vile content, but understanding the systems that allow hate be uh, driven by Facebook because that drives engagement. And she says to, to understand that, you need to make sure that the commissioner who were in point is going to have the experts to back that up. The problem there is, and here's the rub, is there's only around 200 of these algorithm experts who exist in the world. To back them up, we'd need 20 in Ireland alone. So you'd need 10% of the world's actual population of algorithm experts. There's another problem. There's no undergraduate course to be an algorithm expert. You're trained in-house by Facebook. So a bit like what I said today, you'd nearly have to break into the, the chocolate factory, rub the umpalumpus with the magic formula, so we'd actually have the people that could actually understand the algorithms that are being devised by Facebook. On top of that, you asked the question, how much are these guys being paid? She said a basic of half a million per person plus add-ons. It's a big ask when you know that Facebook are making 40 billion euros worth of profit for, um, for governments and the public system to fight against okay, that. Sure. But the point is, we're doing it. We brought the legislation in last night, Ian. We're making those yeah, initial can uh, I, points. Can I, can I just ask, and I'm curious, um, and, and this is it's, it's a genuine question, which is, and I appreciate your committee and you know some of the work that they've done has been really good. Do you think the government has any interest in regulating Facebook over the past decade? Well, I think the government has actually faced up to the responsibility. Previous governments maybe haven't, but this government and the, and, and the government that I'm uh, a party member of certainly is. And I think that they're actually very willing to take it on. And remember, Facebook came before us in these exchanges. They were quite terse exchanges. They brought us away privately then to try and explain to us their community standards about how they deal with these file information. It left me more despaired because the because level it's all of, in house. Because it's all in house. So they're making the rules, and we're we're just sort exactly of exactly why all that goes. Exactly why we want bullying, the harassment, racism, misogyny goes on and on. They're self-regulated. Self -regulate. yeah, self we've made the point that that's not acceptable anymore and that's why we're going to appoint a commissioner to deal with that. Shane, it, it is a problem here really that Big because time, yeah. we have, you know, we, we have this relationship, this foreign direct investment we want in the country, you know, what do you do then around that I, when all these problems, yeah, and I, they are, yeah, they are that, global that, problems. It's, they are global are problems. There. Look, let's call a spade a spade, we're, bad. we're good at many things in this country, we are not good at regulation, whether it's planning, whether it's financial services or big tech, and we haven't done a good job at regulating big tech. Are we equipped to do it now? I suspect we're not, for a couple of reasons. One of them, politically, um, you mentioned, we are hugely dependent on on uh, on big tech. Uh, do you throw the, the baby out with the bathwater? I think there's a certain reluctance to do that. But, but do I, you think the appetite is there? I, I think the appetite is growing because I think we can't ignore it anymore. I think that's the service uh, Frances Haugen has done and what an impressive woman she is. She has done the service. I don't think we could ignore it any further. But I think the big issue is the economics of it. Can you have 27 across the EU different regulators all paying a half a million top job and hundreds of thousands to, to everybody else there? I don't think you can. I think politically and financially it would make more sense if you had an EU office of regulation uh, that could come down hard. And on we are hearing companies. the EU will get more involved maybe in latter years, but it's still up to us, um, Lynn, to, to do something about this now. Uh, what would Sinn Féin do in this situation? Because whatever is announced, it needs to have teeth. And what Francis Haugen appeared to be saying today is, um, you know, it won't. Yeah, and, and like, look, I'd echo what, what's already been said. There has been a huge reluctance by 
the governments previous to this one to tackle the big tech companies and to regulate them and to directly regulate them. And what we need now is, as you said, we need the, the commissioner to have the teeth, to have the resources to do the job. And we need to get the transparency from Facebook because I think one of the things that she was saying was around, you know, the Facebook gives you no information. So no information about the moderators, about the language that the moderators have, the paying conditions of the moderators because they're doing the worst job of all, whatever about the algorithm designers. And we need to force, again, regulate that Facebook introduces those algorithm changes that force, okay. force stop that kind of constant pushing you towards the I mean the violence and towards the more extreme content. Now, Facebook on that like because they've issued a statement saying contrary to claims about our company we've always had the commercial incentive to remove harmful content from our platform people don't want to see it when they use our apps and, and advertisers don't want ads next to us that's their defense it's in their interest not to have this online. Well, the evidence would suggest otherwise I mean I think there was one case where they were talking about is it in Germany where you know there was the people who joined uh, far-right organizations were directed to join that from Facebook links so we know the evidence I mean we've seen the evidence we've heard from 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 the whistleblower Francis saying you know that Facebook know about the damage that they're doing and the harm that they're doing to young people and the impact they're having in terms of conflicts around the world and they're not taking the measures and even if you look at Twitter which is far from perfect it has at least things where it goes please you know do you want to read the article before you, you retweet it like they're simple things they're not huge asks that we could ask of Facebook just to slow down that constant uh, I, like, clicking I, I, and sharing. And I like that you know you could ask these things of a, of a tech giant they will essentially do what they please unless regulations say otherwise. Oh that's what I mean it has to be regulations we yeah. can't rely on these tech companies to regulate themselves. Okay. Part of the problem here Ian is like if we do have a body like this, like there's no direct complaints mechanism because they've already said that, you know, Catherine Martin has said, yes, we will set up, we will have this online safety commissioner, but we can't cope with complaints from a population of 480 million people right around Europe. No, I mean, it's, look at, I've seen headlines and people talk about, you know, David versus Goliath. It's not, it's, you know, Goliath versus you know, David's little brother. We are, we just can't deal with this. It's, it's just, I mean, the, the idea, it's not so long ago that the Data Protection Commissioner um, was operating above a spar in the Midlands. That's how little money or how little effort that we've given that particular body. They've increased the resources and they've, they've increased the people coming in. We don't have the capability to do it. Even if we took all of the lawyers from the top 10 or 15 law firms in the country, it would still be pale in comparison to the level of resource that Facebook and Google and everyone else can throw at it. This really needs change, right? This needs to be done uh, on a, on a pan-European level. Facebook is a multinational company. Trying to regulate them on a national basis doesn't make any sense. Uh, can that be done? Is there a, a simple rule change, uh, briefly, Shane, that could allow this to become more of a pan-European operation rather than relying on us ill-resourced to, to cope with this issue? Yes, yeah, certainly. And just on that issue of individual complaint mechanism, because this is a big thing, that an individual can make that complaint. Francis Hogan suggested today to the Commission, I think it's something we would have taken on board, of group case action. So if a group of mums who, whose daughters or sons have been in, uh, uh, impacted by self-harm or something could come together and take an action as a group right. rather than individuals. Okay, uh, that could be one solution in what is uh, a very big problem. We'll leave it there. My thanks to my panel tonight after the break. We debate nuclear energy. Stay with us.
now with a climate emergency upon us, we're going to debate nuclear energy in Ireland. And joining me here in studio is Saif O'Neill, Assistant Professor at the School of Law and Government at DCU, and Sarah Cullen, Director at 18 for Zero. You're both very welcome along to the programme. Um, and I want you both, because you've come from opposing sides of this debate around nuclear energy, um, but maybe you can just set out your stall and, and tell us why you feel so strongly one way or the other on it. Um, Sarah, from your point of view, that campaign, 18 for Zero, is really pushing for nuclear energy here in Ireland and for it to be considered at least. Why is that? Yeah, so we're not pushing for nuclear energy in Ireland. We're pushing for the Irish government to consider all of the technology options that are available to reach net zero emissions in our electricity sector by 2050. At the moment, they're not doing that. At the moment, um, there is a target of reaching net zero emissions, but there are currently no pathways. Airgrid are drawing up pathways that are going to come out in the third quarter of next year. And then in 2024, the Irish government's going to come out with a roadmap. We need to make sure that all technology options are included, um, especially clean ones. The UNECE, so the UN Economic Commission for Europe, this year came out with a study comparing the carbon emissions of all major forms of electricity generation. Nuclear power had the lowest, lower than renewables. It's a good option. Okay, it's a good option, um, says Sarah. Sive, your views on this. Um, to date, it hasn't been considered for here in Ireland. Um, why, why not, do you think, and why do you think it's not a good idea? Well, there has been a long-standing tradition in Ireland of opposition to nuclear energy. Uh, there was a lot of campaigns in the 80s and 90s against the expansion at Sellafield and other power plants in the UK. So the environmental movement essentially grew out of an anti-nuclear movement. Um, but I think the debate has moved on and there are a lot of us environmentalists like myself who are not in principle opposed to nuclear power. The technology um, is low carbon and has been designated as such. The, the, the issue I have with nuclear power is scaling it up in time for it to be a realistic solution to the climate crisis because the UN has told us that we need to be uh, you know completely net zero by 2050 and that developed countries should achieve that by 2040 and we just can't build the nuclear installations in time to uh, for them to play a meaningful role in that. Sarah it's the argument we consistently hear from those mm. who are opposed to nuclear I don't think it's the right option for Ireland that all of this infrastructure it takes far too long to build. Yeah, it's completely untrue. Um, so also the UN says that without nuclear power, climate objectives will not be reached. That was also in the UNECE report that came out this year. Um, under the International Energy Agency's roadmaps to net zero by 2050, we have to at least double the international nuclear mm. capacity in the world. Under the IPCC's 2018 um, 1.5 mm. degree landmark report, um, in the median scenario, we had to increase nuclear by sixfold. Every country in the world that has plans to decarbonise their electricity ha is relying either on hydro or nuclear to support their renewables or a combination of the boat of the two. Ireland has very limited capacity for hydro. We have to consider nuclear. That's okay. what everyone else now, is doing. Just to, just to bring up, people will think of nuclear and whether you like it or not, they're going to start thinking about Sellafield, um, you know, just over the sea. They're going to think about Chernobyl and the huge legacy issues that are associated with nuclear power. Um, that is still an issue when it comes to consideration and considering them for locations here in Ireland. There'll be great opposition to it. There will be opposition, but no matter what 
technologies we decide to build to get to net zero, we're going to have to have massive infrastructure changes that I can guarantee people will not be happy with. We may as well at this point choose the best technologies to get their cheapest and the most reliable and most environmentally er, sustainable way. Okay. And it's doing a disservice to Irish people to just completely discount technologies based on kind of a gut feeling that they don't like them. All right. When you were saying the technologies are newer, would you say the technologies now, would you acknowledge that the technologies now are, are safe and the risks when we talk about the Sellafields, when we talk about Chernobyl's, aren't there with all this new technology, side? Well, um, there's a few different things. There's different kinds of risks and the risks may be lower associated with modern nuclear plants, but they still exist. And the risks entailed in some kind of nuclear accident um, are potentially catastrophic. Now, the nuclear industry has uh, reduced the chances of that with um, ever since Fukushima and mm -hmm. Chernobyl, you know, there have been many improvements, but it doesn't uh, entirely eliminate the risk and that increases the cost. So one of the things we have to remember is that in Ireland, the cheapest form of electricity uh, that is not based on fossil fuels is onshore wind and offshore wind and solar. So it, in, in terms of cost, it makes sense to go with the low hanging fruit. It makes sense to go with rolling out infrastructure that we have the capacity to deliver. And even doing that is going to be very challenging. We have a commitment, for example, of five gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. And experts are saying that that might be very difficult to achieve. And yeah. if we can't even build a children's hospital, an incinerator and the cross city Lewis you know, in less than 10 years, how are we going to roll out nuclear power in a meaningful timescale? Because it's what we do in the near term that really makes a difference to the climate. Sarah, we're not great on timeframes in this country. As you know, when there's a plan, it won't be done when, for the most part, when they say it be done. Someone has tweeted in to say, imagine asking our government to regulate nuclear and they can't regulate housing. It's, it's a huge proposition, isn't it? If I Ireland was going to build nuclear power, we would have to follow the International Atomic Energy Agency milestone approach to doing that. That takes between 10 and 15 years, which is short on the time scale of energy systems. And what about the cost? Also, I have to point out, this, uh, yeah, about the cost. Um, it's not accurate to say that wind is the cheapest form of electricity generation. A system entirely based on wind would be astronomically expensive. The OECD came out with a report, I think last year, that showed that system costs escalate dramatically the more variable renewables you have in a system with up to 75%, which is lower than the target our mm -hmm. government has for 2030, it doubles the cost of electricity just yes. from system costs alone. Yeah, I mean, there are all those other, um, you know, energy sources that we can be looking at, but should we be more ambitious around this side and should we look long term? Yes, we need a steady energy supply today, but we also need it in decades to come. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, when it comes to the climate crisis, the penny still has not dropped. We are facing a climate emergency and we need to decarbonise our energy systems rapidly, much more quickly than is comfortable, to be honest. We're going to be uh, looking at making emission reductions in the order of 7% per annum here in Ireland and we're nowhere near getting that in place yet. So the challenge is enormous. And I, for one, don't think we should, in principle, rule out any technology that can play a role. But we have to consider that if we uh, open the door to nuclear in this way, 
if we take a cavalier approach to risk and large-scale complex technologies, we're also opening the door to geoengineering options to fix the climate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we, we, we have to go with the most ecologically sustainable solutions right. to our energy needs, and they're already there. Sarah, to come in on that and, on the, on, on risk, when you talk about radioactive waste, like the US isn't arguably able to handle that as yet. So there are, are there issues true. around that? Um, and nuclear waste is incredibly well managed. There has never been a major environmental release of stored nuclear waste from nuclear power plants. What most people think of as hazardous nuclear waste is usually legacy military waste. I don't know why you think we would take a cavalier approach to risk. We wouldn't be able to do that. Ireland is a member of the International Atomic Energy Agency. We would have to follow their protocols for looking into building nuclear. We'd have to follow the highest standards. And currently, Ireland does regulate nuclear materials under the EPA. And we've been commended greatly by the IAEA for how well we do that. Ireland has a really good safety standard for this. I, I don't think that Ireland's too incompetent or too cavalier with safety to yeah, be able to build nuclear power. I think that's, I think that's a power. We're talking about a sort of societal socio-technical transition to zero carbon energy. And if we're going to bring in new technologies that do inherently present risks, complexity, uh, large-scale um, changes in everything about how our energy system is constructed. That opens the door to considering other types of interferences with the climate system on, on, a, on a moral hazard basis. I think we should be extremely careful about that. Um, so we have Would to look at each... Would generally be opposed to nuclear energy? Climate I, activists I think, aren't. I think that... It's the lowest carbon form of electricity generation. I think that environmentalists want a safe atmosphere and that means reducing our emissions by at least 50% okay. by 2030. And if somebody can show me a way okay. of doing that with nuclear, I'll be forced. We oh. have it in our report. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. And to note that Saif O'Neill is standing in the Shannon TCD by-election along with these other candidates. There's the full list there, as you can see. Um, plenty um, looking to be elected. That is it from us, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.